Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word this morning. We're going to be back in Daniel chapter 11, but I want to set that context up by reading a portion out of the Psalms. So just read along with me, Psalm 84, uh, verses 8 through 10, and, and join your voices to mine as we read through this together. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and open up with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is where we've been. And as we get there, I'm going to review with you just briefly a little bit because we started that chapter last week. And for those of you who are joining us, I just need to explain two things for you and how they kind of unpack in Daniel chapter 11. The first is biblical prophecy, which we said last week is the telling of history prior to its happening. Daniel 11 has 100 prophecies that fulfill themselves, and you'll see in a moment that history actually records those things being fulfilled. So it's not like we're saying, well, it'll happen one day. We're saying it has happened or it has already happened. So we're going to talk about that in a second. The second idea, well, let me just talk about that now, okay? So you may remember that Daniel writes this book the book of Daniel back in 536 to 530 B.C., but these prophecies start to get fulfilled specifically in 486 and 326 and 261 and 175 B.C. They get fulfilled. And so what you end up realizing is that something that was written 500 years prior to it, actually 400 years prior to it happening, continues to be fulfilled. So you can actually look at history and mark these things as being fulfilled. You may remember last week, too, that we talked about Alexander the Great broke into four kingdoms. He had two kings in particular. Now, just stay with me for the three-minute history lesson here, okay? Don't check out. And moms, if you're thinking, uh, man, I, and dads, you're thinking, I sure hope we get out of here in time to get to the restaurant. Okay, I'm going to do that, all right? But you just got to stay with me because I got to set the context for it, Okay. There were two kings in particular that created what we call in Daniel chapter 11, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And those are the Sulakids, Sulakids, that's the one Sulakids, that's the one in the north, and the Ptolemic, now I'm talking fast because I'm trying to get you out of here in time, that's the one in the south. What you need to know is that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Whenever you read in Daniel 11, the kings of the north came against the kings of the south. The king of the south went against the kings of the north. Those are kingdoms. Those are happening over hundreds of years, right? Stop there right now and just realize that what's in the middle is the red circle, and that's the nation of Israel. And they are continually trampled on, and you'll see in a moment when one of those kings has a temper tantrum on the way home, he chooses to take it out on Israel. Now, that's really important for this reason, not because we're going to fulfill all prophecy today, but because in order to understand prophecy, you've got to understand God's providence. That is, biblical providence means that God is actively related to and involved in his creation at each moment. God can say, this is going to happen, 
200 years, 300 years, 400 years later, because God is intimately involved in maintaining all of the people and events and places that bring us to that point. It's not that he simply knows the future, is that he is actively involved in working the future. That's important. And uh, I'm going to give you a theological concept here that I spoke of last week briefly, and then I'm going to give you one in a few minutes, just a warning. It's going to stretch your mind a little bit, but that's okay. It's good to be stretched, okay? Here we go. When it comes to providence, the biblical doctrine does not teach that events in creation are determined by chance. That's how our world looks at it. That's why they look at what goes on over in Europe presently and Russia's attack on Ukraine, and they say, why is this even happening? They think it's random. It's not random. But it also means that they are not determined by an impersonal fate or determinism. That's the person who throws their hands up and say, what's the use? I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do anyhow. Right? I remember years ago, a, a young man was sitting in my, in my office, and he was talking about how God knew everything that was going to happen. And he took a pencil, and he went like this. He said, like, watch, I move the pencil from here to here. I move it from here to here. I move it from here to, I'm going to move it back here. And he said, God even knew that. Right? That's exactly right. But that doesn't mean that it's predetermined that we can't participate in it. Who is a personal yet infinitely powerful creator and Lord? Now, we're going to kind of unpack that. And the reason that has to be unpacked is because the guy we look at today, next to Adolf Hitler, was probably the worst guy that the Jews ever met. Now, see, this is the problem with providence. If we believe that God is in control, then how do we answer the suffering we face? That's it. In fact, there's probably a host of people in the world today who disconnected from their faith because they say, I couldn't do that. And you thought prophecy was only like uh, to tell you what's going to happen in the end times. No, it's not. It's meant for us to look at suffering and difficulty and say, God is still providentially involved even though I can't put those pieces together. Let me introduce you to Antiochus Epiphany, okay? He is, um, he came from the Seleucid Empire, and we'll kind of unpack that here in a second, from, right from the text in Daniel 11. So he's one of the kings from the north, or the kings of Syria, but he comes down and attacks the Ptolemaic Empire, that's the kingdom in the south, that's kind of where he is, and he keeps running through Israel each time he does that. If you had been a Jew in that era of life, you would probably have said, when great suffering makes it hard to believe, what am I supposed to do? If you lived in Ukraine today, you'd probably say, when great suffering makes it hard to believe, what am I supposed to do? And because I don't know your story today, there's probably a host of you in here today who are saying, Phil, if you knew what was happening in my life, if you knew what was happening in my marriage, if you knew what was happening with my kids, if you knew what was happening at my work, if you knew what was happening, then you would know that this makes sense to me today when great suffering makes it hard to believe. So we're going to take Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to learn what we can learn from the Scriptures here. Take a look at the beginning. Here's the first thing. When great suffering makes it hard to believe, you must reaffirm that God is still in control. You say, but I can't. I can't reaffirm it because the suffering is so great and I don't understand it. Right? I get that. I remember when uh, we visited Bosnia right after the uh, Bosnian War, um, I was confronted with suffering that I'd never seen before. As we traveled from Sarajevo out to the little village we were going to partner with, uh, the missionary who I was traveling with started telling me stories 
that were staggering of people's physical, mental, every kind of abuse, sexual, every kind of abuse you can imagine they perpetrated on one another in the name of ethnic cleansing, but they would acknowledge it really wasn't ethnic cleansing. It was just selfishness perpetrated at the highest level. And I remember that when we came to this one little village, even though they didn't speak English, painted on the wall right there in huge red letters were were three letters, W-H-Y question mark. I remember looking at that thinking, even the people here don't understand why. So when you're looking at your circumstances and there's a lot of suffering involved, it's hard to believe, right? It's hard to believe that God cares. It's hard to believe that God's involved. The first thing we do is reaffirm that God is in control. Now, watch this in the text. We're going to pick it up at Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. Daniel 11, verse 20. You just kind of unpack this, and you're going to just notice, then shall. Okay, that's the phrase we're after because it's definitive. It's saying this will happen in the future. Now, bear in mind, in history, it happens 400 years later, okay? So men didn't come up with this. God himself brings these things about. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Verse 21, in his place shall arise. Look a little later. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Verse 22, Armies shall be utterly swept away. So now you're not just talking about individuals. You're talking about massive armies. And a little later, verse 23, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. Now you're talking about the internal character of a man. He shall become strong with small people. Verse 24, and without warning, he shall come. And the end of that passage, he shall devise plans against strongholds. And here it is. Just say this phrase with me but only for a time, right? How can it only happen for a time? Because God never took his finger off the control button the entire time, That's why even though these things happen, God himself is still in control. Now, I know right now you might be thinking, then why does it happen, okay? Why do bad things happen? If God's really in control, why did he let them happen? Okay, just hold on. We're going to get there, okay? Let me go back and just unpack this historically for you for a second, okay? Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. Then shall arise in his place. So again, historically, what actually happens is that Antiochus III had several sons. And when he dies, um, one of his sons steps forward and says, listen, I... Rome's asking us for a lot of taxes. We're Greeks, but Rome's asking us for a lot of taxes. So I'm going to send my tax collector down, and he's just going to wreak havoc on trying to raise, raise up the taxes. And so you thought we had tax problems in New Jersey. Okay, so he, here he goes down there. He literally tries to plunder Jerusalem to get those taxes. He gets scared and comes back. And in the end, the tax collector, you ready for this, poisons the king. Okay. And you thought you had problems with the tax collector, Okay. Note this, that's why it says he shall be broken neither in anger or in battle. His father, uh, Antiochus III, was broken by an angry mob, and other kings were broken in battle, but this king is just poisoned. That's what happens. History records it. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. This is the introduction of Antiochus Epiphanes, the worst character since Adolf Hitler that would affect the Jews. 
He is contemptible. That's what's mentioned here by Daniel. But bear in mind, it's all coming 300 years later after Daniel writes it. And he's not of royal majesty. That is because he was a son, but remember, his older brother, the kingdom should pass through his older brother to his son, not to the, not to the uncle. Antiochus Epiphanes is only the uncle, but the heir is over in Rome held hostage. And so guess what happens? Antiochus Epiphany, who is not of royal descent, steps in and takes the kingdom. And he shall come without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, and that's exactly what he did. Everybody thought Antiochus Epiphanes was on their side because he just told them good things, but it was all deceit, all deceit. In fact, we go on to read, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now, there was another king, remember the southern king, Antiochus Epiphanes is the northern king. The southern king, Ptolemy IV, actually says, listen, I got a problem with my brother. Can I work a covenant with you? And he says, sure, let's work an agreement. You never wanted to work an agreement with Antiochus Epiphanes, but that's what they did. And even that covenant was broken. And from that time on, the alliance is made with him. He shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong, and that's exactly what he does. And verse 24, and without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the providence, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. Because Antiochus Epiphanes worked an arrangement with the, northern, with the southern king down in Egypt, when eventually he breaks that covenant, that king says, we got a problem. Let's get Antiochus Epiphanes back north where he belongs. And he can't, okay? And all of a sudden, Antiochus Epiphanes just begins to devastate everything that is there. He shall devise plans, literally plans, even against strongholds. Now, let me keep, one of the things I love about this is that this phrase, but only for a time, is best understood this way. Regardless of his wealth and power, his military prowess and cunning, Antiochus would not exceed the limits allotted him by the Lord of history. Stop right there. Tomorrow morning when your news feed comes on and you see all the bad news going on in the world, you just need to just pause and say, wait a minute, I reaffirm that God is still in control. Okay? No one exceeds the limits allotted them by the Lord of history. Okay? No one. So, let's keep talking. Here we go. Reaffirm that God is still in control. Now, I told you, I was going to have to stretch your mind for just a second, so let me do this. Because Antiochus Epiphanes is a really, really bad character. So, you might be asking the question, well, how exactly do we manage something like, um, like, like God is in control with a really, really bad character? Okay? Is God making that person do those things? Hold, stop right there. Let the Scripture interpret it. Let no one say when he's tempted, James says, that I am tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, neither tempts he any man. But everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death, okay? Destruction is coming if we chase our desires, okay? But God somehow interacts with those desires, and here's how he does it, okay? Okay, now, just for a moment, just so we're on the same page, say... Phil, stretch my mind, okay? Just say it. Okay, thank you. Since you ask, I will. Okay, so here we go, okay? Here we go. This is called the doctrine of concurrence, and it's really important that you just pay a lot of attention here because I want you to see this. The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created being so that these things themselves bring about the results that we see, that is, what we visibly see. 
The divine cause of each event works as an invisible, behind-the-scenes, directing cause, and therefore could be called the primary cause that plans and initiates everything that happens. In other words, God is the primary cause. However, however, watch this. The created thing, that is you and me, brings about actions in ways consistent with the creature's own properties, which means God knows how we're going to respond And God knew how Antiochus Epiphanes would respond once he got a little bit of power. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore be called the secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they are the causes that are evident to us by observation. Right there you have it. God ultimately knows and understands each of us and every human being so well that he knows exactly how they will respond when placed in the same situation. Let me see if I can explain it by way of a quick illustration. Okay. Uh, Kim calls me. Kim will call and say, hey, can you pick up the milk on the way home? Okay. I say, sure, because I have great intentions. Okay. I'll pick up the milk on the way home. But I only remember to pick up the milk on the way home when I pull the car into the garage. Okay. And I'm walking into the house, and Kim says to me, did you pick up the milk on the way home? And I say, oh, I just remembered. Okay. My wife, and she has said this kindly, okay, has every right to say, I knew that would happen. How does she know that? How does she know that? How does she know what's going on in my mind? How does she know what's going on in my heart? How does she know, right? Because she knows more about me than probably anybody else knows about me. And so she knows that given certain circumstances, that is actually what will happen. Are you with me in that? Yet my wife doesn't know me perfectly. But God knows every individual perfectly. And that's the doctrine of concurrence. He knows that given certain situations, those situations and those people operating in their own will will do exactly what they were created to do even in their fallen nature. You say, well, that still doesn't answer why he allows it to happen. Why didn't he just X out Antiochus Epiphanes from the very beginning, right? Because God's purposes are different than ours. But the one thing you got to know and you can reaffirm is that God is in control, okay? So the things you and I see, those are secondary causes. God's the one who put the people where they need to be in his providence. And those are the secondary causes. They look primary, but they're not. God ultimately is the one behind it, though he is not sinning. Daniel chapter 11 says this, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. That's Antiochus Epiphanes from the north coming down. And the king of the south shall wage war with exceedingly great and mighty army. That's exactly what the king down there in Egypt did, the Ptolemic king. But he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Antiochus Epiphanes was so deceitful, he'd worked inner working spies to overthrow the king of the south. Even though those who eat food, eat his food, shall break him. What does that mean? It means that Antiochus Epiphanes had worked relationships deceitfully with the southern people in the kingdom. His army shall be swept away, the southern kingdom swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. This is such a great phrase. It literally means that both of them agreed, like they, uh, they shook hands with one another, the king of the north and the king of the south, and said, you can count on me. And in the back of their head, they're thinking, you cannot count on me. They were totally deceitful. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. 
For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Whoa, there it is again. God's saying, listen, I still have my finger on the control button. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's the people of Israel. And he shall work his will and return to his land. Okay, now, S.R. Miller writes, after plundering Egypt, the Antiochus returned home by way of Palestine and found an insurrection in progress. As he's walking right back up through the nation of Israel, he puts down the rebellion. Are you ready for this? Massacring 80,000 men, women, and children looted the temple with the help of the evil high priest Menelaus. The persecution of the Jews by this evil tyrant had now escalated to calamitous proportions. Unbelievable. You say, what in the world is going on? God is saying, listen, even in your greatest suffering and difficulty, I am still there. This is what it looks like when evil men operate with their desires and evil. But it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So Antiochus Epiphanes goes back north, and he says, I'm going to go south, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Oh, this is, this is amazing, because this is exactly how it happened in history. The ships of Kittim are referring to ships that came from Rome. And when those Roman ships got there, Antiochus Epiphany stopped for a second. And uh, there was a Roman soldier. That, uh, let me back up. This is a cool part of the story. He comes down, and, and he's, going for, he's going for the city of Alexandria in, in, uh, in Egypt, in, in northern Africa. Antiochus Epiphany wants to settle in that particular city because, you know, that's a really important city in history. And you know that because at the end of National Treasure, they find scrolls from the city of Alexandria. And by the way, if you want to see those, all you got to do is go over there and dig under Christ Church in Philadelphia, and they'll be there, okay? The point is this. Alexandria was this incredible educational center in Egypt. And Antiochus Epiphany says, I want that one, right? And so he comes to Alexandria, but the Romans, and bear in mind, bear in mind, the Roman Empire isn't operating yet. The Greeks are, even though they're very divided. The Romans show up right here, and one of the Roman, one of the Roman um, generals meets Antiochus Epiphanes four miles out of town, and this is what he says. He, uh, he says, listen, you're about to besiege Jerusalem. The Syrians were moving to besiege Alexandria. The Roman commander, Gaius Papaleus Lanus, met Antiochus four miles outside of the city and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to leave Egypt or face war. Now watch this. This is the ultimate bluff. Okay. Then the Roman commander drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and told him that he must respond before stepping from the circle. Okay. This is great. Like This is history happening just the way it was defined in the Scriptures. And, and well aware of the might of Rome, having been a hostage there, and also remembering his father, Antiochus III, defeat by the Roman legions, the Syrian king stood in humiliated silence for a brief interval and then acquiesced to the demand, and Antiochus withdrew from Egypt to Antioch in utter humiliation, except to go home, he would go right back through Israel. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. And ultimately, that leads to this. 
that they shall set up what they call the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolations. Now, this is all the stuff that is prophesied to happen, but you know where it's happening? It's happening right in that interim between your Old Testament, last verse of Malachi, and your New Testament, first verse of Matthew. All of this happens right there. And if you had been a person then, you might say, hey, listen, is there a prophet to speak? Is there someone who can write some scripture for us? Is there some hope? Where is God in all of this? And what you would understand is that we reaffirm that God is in control, and then we understand this, that realize that courage often has consequence. This is where the human entity, the human being, the human will engages in the opportunity that is there. This is so important. Are you suffering? Then you must understand that your courage engaged right there by the grace of God is what God is calling you to do. He's not calling you to back out. He's not calling you to walk away. He's not calling you to quit. He's calling you to be involved because that's exactly what happens. In these 400 years, the, what happens is that Antiochus Epiphany says, I don't want that high priest. I want a new high priest. So he takes out Jason, the high priest, and he sticks in Melinus, a new high priest, who's going to do it just the way he wants it. And just the way he wants it has to do with him offering a pig on the altar, which would have been highly offensive to Jews. And saying to all of the Jews in Israel, listen, you are not allowed to practice any of the things in your Bible, and we're burning Bibles. And by the way, that temple that had been built for Yahweh, the true and living God, we're going to move an, an idol of Zeus into that temple. Okay. A couple things happen. There's an old priest who uh, comes up, and he comes to serve, and he comes up to the temple. Matthias is his name, and he understands that what's about to happen, and he steps back from the altar, takes a knife, and then he executes the general that's there and the bad high priest that's there. Matthias has five sons. One of his sons is a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, no comparison at all to Judas in the New Testament, okay? Judas Maccabeus is a man of incredible courage. In fact, it is just, it is fascinating reading to read how he, with a handful of men in rebell as, uh, rebelling against Antiochus Epiphanes, actually wipes out over and over again this entire army. They don't even have any weapons. They, they have a bunch of rusted out relics. And so the first thing they do is they begin to attack some of the smaller groups that are policing um, for the Syrian army, and they take, once they get those guys out of the way, they get their weapons, and so they start to build their weapons. They actually trap them in this canyon where they come down through this canyon. They don't know any better, and, 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 um, and Judas Maccabeus sends his army around the back of that canyon, and so they've got them locked in, and they keep pushing them through, and they keep basically destroying that army and all the while taking their weapons. Not unlike a little bit of what we see happening in Ukraine today. There's a phrase here in Daniel 11 that is so powerful. Just look at it. 
Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. That would have been the fortress. would have been where they were kind of holed up there around the temple and the temple mount. And shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's putting Zeus, the idol, into the temple. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. He will actually work with Jewish people and say, listen, trust me, you can follow me, you can trust me, etc., etc. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That is a great line, okay? That is a great line. It tells you and me our responsibilities. Here he is, the artist's conception of Judas Maccabeus with a handful of soldiers taking on masses of armies. In fact, um, the the Seleucid kings come down there with with elephants. Literally, one of Judas Maccabeus' younger brothers runs up because they're frightened, runs up underneath the elephant, stabs him through the heart. The elephant crushes him. It's just like, it's like courage everywhere you turn around. You say, well, Phil, we live in a safe world. I don't have to have that courage. Listen, if you're, placing any, if you're facing any kind of suffering, then you need courage. You need courage to say, whatever's going on, I'm trusting God and I want to do my part. Let me tell you just about two people who are doing their part. Um, I have two friends that I went to seminary with. One, I have more than two friends, but I have two friends from my seminary days, okay, that I've stayed in touch with. That's the better way to say that. One is my friend Greg that you heard on the phone a few months ago now when he called in from Ukraine. He's an American pastor. He chose to stay in Ukraine, even though he had opportunities to get out. He said, this is where my people are. Did you know that I was following him on Facebook the other day, and I saw that he said, here's my prayer request. Pray for my son, Joseph, who is coming from California to bring us medical supplies, and I want you to pray that he'll safely get here. And I remember thinking, like, your son, your adult son, is coming to where you are because you and your wife chose not to leave, right? And then there's this really cool picture of a pastor, right, in a flak jacket, standing there with his son in a flak jacket with his arm around each other saying, he made it, right? In war-torn areas of the world, they continue to do service. That's courage, right? Courage, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The other is my friend Christian, who went to Germany to start a seminary, which is what he does. He has a seminary and, and does training out of Germany He's about my age, too. That's the connection, by the way, where when you've given money to Ukraine, we've sent it in from Germany in. Do you want to know what this seminary is doing? It's a seminary. This is where you go to learn Greek and Hebrew and and try not to fall asleep in class some days, okay? Like, I know, okay? I was there, okay? So here's the thing. That's what you think is going on. They are delivering 35,000, 35,000 pounds of food and supply into Ukraine every week. They have vans and trailers. They just load them up and take them in. By faith in God, they have said, listen, we want to do this thing. We need $5,000 a day to do this, and they just keep taking this stuff in. These are seminary professors driving across the border into war-torn areas. I just want to remind you that when suffering is there, God doesn't give us a pass. He doesn't ask us to step away from it. 
that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. You probably know the story of Judas Maccabeus even without knowing it, because if you've ever um, looked at the Hanukkah celebration, that's the moment in those years between the Old Testament and New Testament where they took back the temple, okay? And they fought to get it back, and they tore down the idol of Zeus that was in their temple, and they re, they, they dedicated the temple. And the story goes, it's a thematic legend, but the story goes that they found one little vial of oil to light the candelabra with that would, should last one day, but it lasted eight days, okay? I don't know if that story is accurate, that's how the story is told, but it certainly squares up with the way our God does miracles throughout the Bible. And today, okay, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. If you experience suffering, if you're experiencing difficulty, I just want to remind you, that is your opportunity for courage, right? Don't give up. There's one final thing we remember. When in great times of suffering, what makes it hard to believe, we reaffirm that God is still in control, number one. We realize that courage often has consequence, number two. Judas Maccabeus would die in the end of the story, okay? And we remember how the story ends. I love that. We remember how the story ends. Notice how Daniel 11, verse 35, wraps up this section with this idea. And some of the wise shall stumble, that is, some will fall, so that they might be refined, purified, and made white. Literally, the idea that they would be pure is the idea of being made white there. They're refined, they're purified until the time of the end. It's like God just says, okay, it's a window. Your suffering is a window. The world's suffering is a window of time until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This great reminder, even at the end of this section, that God has said, I've got it under control. You interact with me on the basis of courage when you face suffering, and you need to know that the end of the story is not the way it presently is going on now. I read one commentator on this passage that said, can you imagine? You're facing all of that stuff that's going on under Antiochus Epiphanes. 80,000 people in your city have been killed. All of that stuff's happening. You know what phrase probably gives you the greatest hope until the time of the end? The fact that you can honestly know that it's going to stop at some stage. And that's how God operates today. He, even in, in, in the book of Corinthians, we read that the outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. God has purposes that he is shaping out, refining and purifying and, and making us useful right through the suffering. Our goal, our, our goal, singular goal, should simply be to say it in the middle of it, Lord, what do you want me to do? Right? Here am I, send me. I don't know how I can help, but I want to help. Please show me how I can exercise courage in the midst of the suffering. Take a moment and bow your heads with me where you are. Maybe you came this morning hoping for a, for a Mother's Day message. Um, moms, we're glad you're here. We are so thankful for your investment. Can I just tell you again, I know that some of you are suffering as moms and uh, wish your life had been different. I know that some of you are suffering in other ways. I just want to remind you that 
Today is a lesson to look at prophecy and just say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is my role in a world that is suffering? So we come today, we, we just remember that God is the one who is working all things for his glory. And yes, no good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly, even if that is a purifying process through our difficulty and through our suffering. So let me just pray for you in that regard. Father, we are thankful for your word, for the fact that history records it in such a way that um, we just see that all these things you said actually came to pass. And they remind us that though we don't know what's happening tomorrow, and though we see suffering around us, you have asked us how we can be involved, how we can help, how we can serve, that we would consider the widows and the orphans and those who are in need, that we would look around and say, how can we help those who are hurting, that our eyes would be on others and not on ourselves. Help us to do that, I would pray. And we do pray for those who are suffering today that you might grant them grace and peace for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.